0: yeah you need them all. if you guys have your Bibles with you this evening, I just want to invite you to open up to Revelation chapter three and we're going to begin looking at the last three churches we'll look at Sardis tonight as we do as we take a look at this, I want you to to realize that the structure of the letters written to the seven churches changes in chapter three now. It's, it's not a big deal, except that I, th- I feel like if an author wants to draw your attention uh, to something, they will change the, the structure. It's basically, you have a description of Jesus in the beginning, right? A commendation, a condemnation, a promise, a promise to the overcomer, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those things are all still there. The orders just changed and, and how they 're related and and I think the reason for that is just to emphasize um, the the letter to these final three churches. if we think about it as we work our way through the the letters to the churches as we work our way through the the loveless church the the immoral church, the compromising church, the issues that were a part of those churches the persecuted church those are all the issues of the first four and they all have application to us we want to make sure that as believers there's love right god told us that's not a new concept right paul writes to us in first corinthians chapter 13 that that no matter what we do if if our foundation behind it for it and through it isn't love it's pointless it's it's worthless we want to have love jesus also told us that in this world we would face what Tribulation is going to be persecution. Second church, persecuted church. Then you have a church compromising, making compromises with the world, which ultimately leads to a church that has immoral practices within the church. Those are the first four. And if you kind of look at them, it's almost as though it shows the decline, right? How a church may decline. If you may be lacking love, with the exception of the persecuted church, which probably ignites it again, but then if persecution leads you to compromise, compromise leads you to immorality, immorality will lead you to the dead church. And nobody, when they look at the seven churches, there's two churches that nobody wants to be, right? Sardis. What's the other one? Laodicea. Nobody wants to be those two. God doesn't have a lot of good things to say about them. But when we look at it, here's the danger. The danger is we look at it and we think, well, that's that's not me. That can't be me. I can't those can't be issues for me and we we have a deaf ear. And whenever we do that, whenever I do that, whenever I see folks that are struggling in that way, I'm reminded of what God said to Isaiah. Remember Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and His train filled the temple. Everybody with me? And Isaiah comes before the Lord and he, he says, uh, uh, Oh, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I, I'm not good enough to, to serve you, God. And God has an angel take a coal from the altar and touch his lips and says, Your sins are purged. You're made clean. You're made clean. And then God says, Who will go for us? Who can we send? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. And then what's God say? Go. But hearing they won't hear, seeing they won't see, they're not going to turn and be healed because their hearts have grown hard. And hard-heartedness is something that we always have to be concerned about. Because, you know, when we come to the church of Laodicea, God's not even in that church, right? He's outside knocking on the door. Hey, will you let me in? That's bad, right? So we want the Lord to be in our midst. How is it that God gets outside? Hardened hearts. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to see people don't, men don't enter into the rest that God has for them because of hardness of heart. Because of their unbelief. So we want to be pliable, right? When God speaks, we should be listening. And say, "Is is that me, Lord? Is that something... That, that I'm struggling with or that I'm in danger of. And there's a lot of things that we want to glean from as we look at Sardis. A lot of things we want to be able to pull that the Lord lays out for us as we take a look at it. So let's begin chapter 3 and, and verse 1. And we'll just read the first six verses together. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name That you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, that they should walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, every one of the seven churches were chosen for a reason, and we looked at each one just briefly a little bit of their historical background so that we can understand some of the letter that, that Jesus dictates to John that he gives to us. So let's consider a few things. One of the things about Sardis is Sardis is a city at the time Revelation was written that was living in the past. They had had former glory, but that glory was all gone. And they were really a city on the decline. In 17 AD they were destroyed by an earthquake Rome came in to rebuild it. They never even rebuilt the Acropolis. So people just lived below. The Acropolis was what made Sardis so amazing. Oftentimes, in, the, in Greek culture and uh, in, in under Roman rule, many cities had an Acropolis. It was, a, it was a high place. You know when the Bible talks about people going to the high places to worship? Very similar concept. All the temples, the banks, everything would be put up there. People would keep all their money there. So when an enemy came to the area, where did everybody run? To the Acropolis. And then you'd defend the Acropolis, and Sardis was amazing. Super high uh, Acropolis, uh, between 800 and 1,200 feet. The walls are almost perfectly vertical. There was one little path, like a snake path, that if you didn't know where it was, you were, you were not going to get up, especially as an army. Right, if you're an army trying to get up sheer walls, it's easy to defend. They just throw rocks at you. You know, it's it's not hard to defend. So it was considered nearly impregnable. One of the things that Sardis was famous for was one of its kings. It was said that this king Croesus, everything he touched turned to gold. Everything he touched turned. What did we call that guy? Midas fact, it was part of the uh, legend was that Midas was cleansed of the of the curse, if you will, to touch and turn things to gold in the river outside of Sardis, which is why Sardis was said that the river outside of Sardis was said to have so much gold in the river, very rich city, very wealthy city, and <clears throat> in a place where enemies would want to come and attack so but they they would always say we're impregnable we got these sheer walls this is not a big deal let them come and for the most part that worked except for two opponents one was Cyrus and the Persian army and the other was Antiochus Antiochus if you remember our study in Daniel we talked about him now how did those two guys defeat him because they would get up on that Acropolis and think you know Nobody's going to get up here. And the rumor is a soldier lost his helmet and it fell down the side. And one of the enemy enemy soldiers had watched this happen. And then all of a sudden he sees the soldier down picking up his helmet. So he watches him and he's able to trace the path up. A soldier gets up. Nobody's ever going to come up here. He goes to sleep. Both of those armies just march into the city and take it. No fight, no battle. Oops, we were resting on on what we thought we had, and in reality, we didn't have any defense. And so they were both conquered. That's going to be important to understand as we look at some of the things that Jesus has to say in this church. So in verse 1, let's look at the concern Jesus has. It always begins first with a description of of Jesus the Christ that we read in chapter one, right? So he's gonna he's gonna focus on his sovereignty, God's sovereignty, his power. Says these things. Says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, God is in control. Regardless as as to how you see the whether you see the seven spirits as the Holy Spirit, which it could be, or whether you see the seven spirits as the angels that we go throughout the book of Revelation and God's going to send angels to bring different judgments uh, on the world at different times. The point is the same. God is in control. God is in control. He's in control of the outpouring of His Spirit. He's in control of any judgment that would take place. He's holding it all in His hand. Who keeps it? Who holds things together in our life? The Bible tells us Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ ultimately holds it all together. Now, what do we know about Sardis as we know? They have a name that they're alive, but they're really dead. So they're definitely in need of the empowering of the Holy Spirit in that church, aren't they? And where do we go for that Holy Spirit? We go to Jesus. Who's the baptizer of the Holy Spirit, guys? The baptizer of the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ. He is the one. What did John the Baptist say? There's one who comes after me whose sandals I'm not even worthy to loose, and he will baptize you with fire, speaking of judgment, and the Holy Spirit. Who's baptized with the Holy Spirit? Jesus Christ. Jesus, what's his church need? The empowering of the Holy Spirit. This is all, uh, all show, but no reality. Next thing we see here is that God knows the truth about that church. Does God know the truth about you? Does God know the truth about me? So there's no no pulling the wool over God's eyes. He says very clearly, I know your works. He's going to say that seven times, right? Seven churches he's going to be talking about. I know your works. That you have a name. It's almost as though he's saying you have a reputation. But a reputation is no guarantee of true character or spirituality. Anybody can have a name. Literally, it says, you've named yourself. I know your works. Here's his one commendation. You have a name. That's not such a great deal, right? Once upon a time, I was uh, sharing with a couple, going through marriage counseling, and I asked the woman if she could think of one positive thing to say about her husband. And she said well he's here I'm thinking to myself no it wasn't Daniel (coughs) so I'm I I'm thinking to myself that's that's not such a great list right so same thing here when we look at this commendation from the Lord I know your works you have a name you have a name but I want you to see it like that you have a reputation You have a name that you're alive. You have a reputation for, for what you do, but a reputation is not what it's all about. When David is writing in his Psalm dealing with having a true repentant heart in Psalm 51, at probably one of the lowest times in David's life, this is what he said. And listen to what, listen to the words David wrote. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. It's not about what I can wrap up on the outside. It's not about how can I make it look. It's not about what can I wear. There's a lot of people, a lot of places searching for a relationship with God or trying to earn favor with God by what they can do outwardly. But what David declared in Psalm 51.6 is God desires truth inside. Jesus even would say when he was talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees said, What's wrong with your disciples? They are eating with unwashed hands. You remember? Jesus said, Don't you know? That not eating with unwashed hands lets bad in. Because whatever you eat goes, feeds your body, and it goes out. That's all there is to it. It's just food. What defiles a man is already in his heart. Sin is already in a man. And that sin needs to be, it's not about outwardly, what can I do outwardly? How can I look outwardly? I'm not saying that's absolutely unimportant. I'm just saying that's not the way to favor with God. The way to favor with God is seeing an inward truth and reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ on the inside. Then what's God do? He begins to work from the inside out. Doesn't He? He begins to work from the inside out in our lives. Changing us from the inside out. But a lot of people, they just want to put, put whitewash on dead man's bones, right? And it's just a painted grave. You are whitewashed sepulchers, Jesus said, full of dead men's bones. That wasn't bringing them close to God. So we want truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. So this is the commendation of Jesus. This is his concern of the church. You're doing, you, this is what you've done. You have a name. But you're really dead. That's not so good. It's not so good. There's some things that need to happen. So Jesus gives a challenge to this church, just like He does to all the churches. So here's here's my issue with you. You guys have a name that you're alive, but you're not really alive. You're dead. So here's what I want you to do. Look at verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. That word perfect is also the same word for complete. Your works are not complete. Man, This, this, you, you haven't accomplished, you haven't been or done the things that God has laid out before you. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know the hour when I come upon you. So there are six things in these two verses. Let's take a look at them. First, recognize the danger before you recognize the danger before you. What's he asking him to do? Become awake. Wake up. You guys are sleeping. You're sleeping at the wheel. You're not paying attention to what's going on around you. You're not paying attention to what's happening. Just like that guard so long ago, twice, that saw Sardis conquered. Why? Just because he didn't think it was very important. He dropped his helmet, showed him the path down, walked back up. Twice they were conquered without a battle. they thought it was all okay. Sleeping. Jesus says, be watchful, man. Wake up. Come awake. Come awake. Their complacency led them to give up their identification with Christ. Give up their pursuit of Christ. Give up all those things that were part of their mission for Jesus Christ. And they become apathetic. Indifferent. They're just floating downstream. And downstream is not where we want to go. Downstream is not what we're looking for. Think about what Jesus said. Matthew 26, 41. Jesus said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Come awake. Come awake. Wake up. Wake up. The call is to step away from apathy and indifference. The call is to constantly in your life consider Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith. To put our eyes on Him. Keep our eyes on the prize, right? We don't want to be asleep. We want to be awake. Look, the Scripture also tells in Mark 13, Jesus, again speaking, "'Watch therefore, for you do not know when the Master of the house is coming.'" In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch, watch. There's this concept in the Word of God, guys, which is called the doctrine of imminency. Imminency in the, in the point that God is with us. And that Jesus can come and call for his church at any time. Any point. Anywhere, anytime. And what does Jesus call to the church? Hold fast to that hope. I'm coming for you. It was, it was shared in, in Vietnam. It happened over and over again. that A few guys, three or four guys, got cut off from their company. And in a very short period of time, they're out of ammunition. The enemy is still pressing down on them. They're having to pick up enemy rifles from dead guys to try to continue to fight. And the only thing that keeps them going through the night is they can hear the guys from the company shouting out on the radio, we're coming, we're coming, we're coming, we're coming. They didn't get there that day. They didn't get there the next night. It it was going to take a couple of days for them to get there. But because they had this constant affirmation that we're coming, we're coming, they stayed with it. They continued to fight. They continued to patch one another up until the company got there and was able to bring them back into the fold. And that's the same thing that Jesus Christ says to his church. You're in enemy territory. We're overrun. The enemy is all around us. Things are going to be hard and difficult, and it's going to be a a difficult battle, but what is God's word to us? I'm coming. I'm coming. When are you coming? I'm coming. The doctrine of imminency is that it can be any time. So since it can be any time, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, writes in 1 John chapter 3, that everyone who holds on to this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. What's that mean? When I live with the expectancy of looking into the eyes of my Savior at any moment, it changes my priorities. Changes my focus. So Jesus says, watch be awake. It's no time for sleeping. It's high time to be awake. Be awake. Be aware of what's going on. Colossians 4.2 says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Vigilance. Same phrase. Same word. Be awake. Be awake. The opposite of, of sleep is vigilance. Awake, ready to, ready to do battle, ready to understand that we're constantly in a place, not where we're, we're, we're not home. You guys know that, right? This ain't it. We are buried in enemy territory. And Jesus said, do business till I come. Just hold fast until I get there. And that's the role that we're supposed to take. 1 Thessalonians five six, right after speaking about The rapture, he says this. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Be awake. Come awake. 1 Peter 5.8. Why? Be sober. Be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, is walking around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's always looking for somebody to pick off. So, there's no day off. There's no day off. If you're in war... You don't stop in the middle of it and say, "You know, today's my day off. I'm not doing battle today. Today I'm just going to kick back and watch my soaps or I'm going to catch up on some of that reading that I've been wanting to do or no, we got to stay vigilant. We got to stay vigilant. Be watchful. First thing he tells him, "Be awake. Be aware of the danger around you. Be aware that you're in enemy territory. Be aware that you have a real enemy. He's out for you." Be aware. That keeps you from being indifferent. You with me? Keeps you from falling asleep and entering into apathy, which was what was going on in this church. The second thing he says to them is rebuild the things that are important. Rebuild the things that are important. Look, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Strengthen them. Strengthen them. Remember when Jesus is talking to Peter and he says to Peter, Peter, you're going to blow it and you're going to deny me. Peter's like, oh, I, I would never do that. But nevertheless, you're going to. And when you do, look what he says. He says in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, 32, I have prayed for you. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, remember? But Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Strengthen the things which... Remain, establish them, set a firm foundation together. Romans one eleven, he says, "For I long to see you that I may give to you a spiritual gift, so that you may be established, strengthened, that you might have that solid foundation that helps you to stand." He's saying, rebuild the things that are important. First Thessalonians three two, and he, uh, Paul writing to Timothy says, and sent Timothy, our brother." and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish and encourage you concerning the faith. Paul says, I sent Timothy to you in Thessalonica to strengthen you, to establish you, to set that strong foundation. Man, we've, we've got to make that uh, uh, of an important part within the church, within our lives with the Lord. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17, Paul again writing to Thessalonica says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work. He wants to strengthen, strengthen you in your foundation, establish you so that you can continue to do the things that we need to do. This is what Jesus said. Men ought always to pray and not lose heart. We've got to stay connected. we got to stay connected. Look, it was told to me, and maybe you remember when you were a kid, anybody ever played with magnets? you go get all that iron out of the dirt and you can move the iron around with a magnet, right? And we used to take... Rub paper clips on the magnet and then you move it around with the paper clip it becomes like the magnet. It like takes on the attributes of the magnet, but it only lasts for a little while. And then you got to rub it on the magnet again and then it begins to act like that magnet again. But that's how we are. Only instead of rubbing up to the magnet, we just need to stay attached. Who's the magnet? Jesus Christ. And he strengthens us and establishes us so that we can be the men and women that we need to strengthen the things Which remain. They're getting ready to die. Hold fast to Jesus Christ. Hold fast to that empowerment that was lacking for them. And the third thing he tells us. Remember what or how you have received and heard. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. So he's calling them to remember. Remember not not only what you have received and heard. But how. How did you receive the gospel? Well, the Bible's pretty clear. Freely you received, so what? Freely give. Remember how Christ came to you? Remember how the gospel came? Remember what the gospel is? Not only how you received it, but what you've heard. What you've heard. What's he telling them? Remember that you've got to hold fast to the word of God. You've got to hold fast to your foundation or you're going to what? Drift away. You got to hold fast to those things. So he's telling them, "Remember, remember, just like uh, just like the Lord told the the church at Ephesus about how to to get back where they needed. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember, remember, consider, go back, go back to what how you received the gospel, and it wasn't about a big show." It was about the reality that we recognize ourselves as broken men and women before a holy God. And we bow in His presence. We bow that knee, we lift up our hands, and the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, and 10, that we confess Jesus is Lord. And we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. And you will be, say, freely we received. We want to remember. Remember that. Remember the teaching of the apostles and the prophets and the gospel that was brought to you. Remember. Then the fourth thing. You want to recommit yourself to be loyal and faithful to God and His Word. We've got to recommit ourselves. How so? He says in the scripture, hold fast. Hold fast. It means start Once more, to keep, to treasure, to value both God and His Word. Both God and His Word. Because when we find ourselves slipping into apathy, when we find ourselves slipping into indifference, the bottom line is, we don't care about God, nor do we care about His Word. We just care about whatever is next on our, on our plate. Whatever's next on our, uh, on our little list of things that we have to do. And we've lost that, that passion to hold fast to the Word of God. That's simply what it means to keep the Word. When the Word of God says that, that, that we ought to keep His commandments and His commandments should not be burdensome, it all wraps down to that concept. Do you treasure what God says? Do you treasure the book of Hebrews? Chapter 1 says God in, in various times and in various ways has spoken to us in times past through the prophets. Do you care? Do you hold fast to that which God has revealed in His Word? That the God of the universe who created all this cared enough about us to condescend into creation and reveal Himself to us? Do you care? Do you treasure that Word? Because when we treasure, when we value that Word, obedience just naturally flows. Right? Obedience naturally flows when we treasure it. When that's my treasure... When I am treasuring my wife, it is not hard to love her. It's not hard to make her happy. When I'm treasuring my children, it's not hard to find time to pour into their lives. But when I'm not treasuring them, you beat me with a whip and you can't get me to do it. So what's he calling us? Hold fast. That which you let go. What did they let go? They let go the the power, the strength of not only their relationship and love to God, but their love for his word. Apathy. Indifference. Don't read, don't look, don't study, don't praise, don't consider God. And this is what he's calling them to. Man, we want to be a church that not only has a name that they're alive, but that they are alive, then we have to hold fast. Listen to what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. He said, "Old Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. That word guard is the same word. Keep, treasure, hold fast to what I've given you. What was it that he had given him? Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By it some uh, professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Commit. Guard what was committed to your trust. Paul's saying, I've given you that. I've given you the doctrine. I've given you the faith. I've given you the word. Now guard it. Keep it. Treasure it. Hold it. Protect it. Second Timothy 1, 13 and 14, he says, Hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Jesus Christ. That good thing which was committed to you, keep it by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Again, same word, keep it, guard it, treasure it, obey it, cling to it. So what is he saying to us? He's saying to us here, recommit yourself. Say, man, i I got to cling to the Word of God. i got to hold fast to what God has given me so that I can follow, so that I can be and do the things that God wants me to be and do. The fifth thing he tells this church is what we all have to live our lives by. He says, hold fast and repent. That means change your direction. You're going the wrong way. But Led Zeppelin had no idea what they were saying when they said there's still time to change the road you're on. But there's still time to change the road you're on. And if the road you're on is not going where you want to go, if it's not headed toward a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's time to change the road you're on. That's what the concept of repentance is all about. Turn around. Stop going that way. Today is a perfect day to make a change, to see things happen, to see you turn around. repentance means to change my mind and change my direction. So he calls the church at Ephesus to do what? Repent. He calls the church at Thyatira to do what? Repent. Calls the church at Pergamos to do what? Repent. The only one he didn't call to repent was Smyrna. They're the ones who were dying, you remember? They're being persecuted. He told them, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. The life of a believer is a life of repentance. We are never holy in and of ourselves. We are holy and, and righteous based on our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not something I did, it's something He does. And in order to stay in that place of righteousness, then I need to apply what John, the same writer of the book of Revelation, told me in 1 John 1, 1.9, which is what? To confess my sins before the Lord. To confess my sin. And he would be faithful and just to forgive me my sins and do what? Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That's what Jesus Christ does. That's a life of repentance. A life of repentance. Fifth thing: repent, repent. And the sixth thing, the final thing he lays out for us in this section, realize what's going to happen if you don't repent. Realize what's going to happen. If you don't repent. Jesus said. uh, In in verse 3. He says. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold fast. Repent. But if you will not watch. I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know. What hour I come. He's not talking about the rapture. He's talking about coming in judgment. He said I will come. This is not a good I will come. Remember I told you when we talked about it in in the church at Ephesus, when when he said to the church at Ephesus, if you will not repent, I will come and take away the candlestick. I'll take away your witness. I'll take away the reality that you are a church. You won't be in the midst anymore. You'll be outside like Laodicea where he's knocking at the door to get in. He says, look, if you won't watch, I'm going to come in judgment like a thief. Just like Antiochus did, just like Cyrus did, you think everything's good, and we're protected, and it's all all alright, and then you fall asleep at night, and you wake up the next day and find out you've been conquered. You've been conquered by another people. There's a new king, there's a new sheriff in town. Only in this case, Jesus is saying to them, look, if you won't watch, I will come. And that's, I will come in judgment. I'm going to come in judgment and you're not going to see me coming just like you didn't see Antiochus, just like you didn't see Cyrus. They fully understand what he's talking about. They fully understand what he's talking about. I'm going to come like a thief and I'm going to remove your witness. I'm going to re- Man, I don't ever want God to be saying that about me. I don't ever want God to be saying, oh, if, if you're not going to repent, then I'm going to come quickly and take your lampstand away. Oh, I want to watch. I want to be looking for him. I want to realize every day could be the day I see my Savior. Francis Chan's got this great illustration about the rope. You guys remember I told you about it, right? The, he, he, he'll bring out a rope and it strings from one side of the sanctuary to the other side. And on one end, he's got a little piece of red tape. And he says, that's, the, that's our life. The rest of the rope, it represents eternity. And he says, you need to picture like the rest of the rope keeps going because eternity don't stop. And we're putting so much weight in that little piece of red. We're putting all our weight in what's happening in that little piece of red. But that little piece of red is all the time we got. To earn the right to stand before our Savior and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And when that red part's done, when we're standing before God, it's too late. We don't get to go back. Time is now. Today is the day. Now is the time. How many times does God tell us that in the Word? How many times throughout the New Testament is the Lord saying, don't wait, wake up, let's go, let's be busy because this life is like grass. Now that I'm 50-something, I realize, you know, that was pretty quick. Now, 20-year-olds are like, oh, it's going to take me forever to become 21. Well, trust me, it ain't going to take you that long to get to 50. <laughs> You're living for all that, man, I'm to, I can't wait for all these things. I, hey, that's cool, but life is short. And you, you wake up at, for me personally, wake up and, and I'm about, I think I'm about to hit my 53rd birthday. And I realize I'm way over the halfway. If seventy, if seventy is the average, not for all you seventy-year-olds. Well, well done. <laughs> You're above average. Hallelujah! Praise God! You give me hope. <clears throat> but I'm just gonna go with the average. If the average is seventy, dude, I'm way, I'm over the corner, down the hill, and around the bend. And it's since it didn't take long to get to fifty, seventy is just like I'm gonna blink and it's gonna be there. Do you know that the Word of God says that's how it is? Do you know that the Word of God says, Lord, teach me to number my days so that I can apply the heart of wisdom? Because this life is short. And we got to take advantage of the time we got. Take advantage. Live it. Enjoy it. Love it. But keep God central. Keep your eyes on Him. Keep your eyes on the prize, the purpose. For which we work because we don't want Jesus to come in judgment. The Bible declares to us that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. The Bible declares to us that if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged, right? We talked about that last time. If I look at myself and say, God, is this me? What is He asking me to do? He's not telling me, well, put together this 47 step concept about how to really live your life in power for jesus what's he asked me to do one thing get on my knees and repent god forgive me help me be the man you want me to be i need your spirit to empower me that's what's missing as sardis the problem with sardis is they don't care it's a church apathy and so they have a name but they're dead what's the comfort of jesus to the faithful let's look at verse four you have a few names. Just look at that and think about it for a minute. You have a few names, even in Sardis, that have not defiled their garments. That's not a lot. Let me, let me make it real. You have a few names in Buell who are saved. That tells me there's a lot of work to do, Right? He says to Sardis, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And What does that mean? How, how, do they defile their garments? Look, our garments speak to purity, to our purity. And how, where does our purity come from? It don't come from us. Where does it come from? Remember the parable in Matthew 22. How do we enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb? How do we get to the wedding feast? We, we take, we take the invitation that goes out to everyone. We answer the invitation, we put on a wedding garment, right? What are we putting on? The righteousness of Christ, yeah? So how do we defile that? We defile that when we turn away from Christ and back toward anything else. We defile it when we're turning away. We're like, yeah, I got that, but I don't, nah. We despise it. Man, Hebrews has two very scary passages in it. Very scary. That talk about trampling the the blood of Jesus Christ underfoot. That talk about having seen and heard and partaken, and then to turn away. I don't want that. I don't want. You have a few names that have not defiled. You have a few people there in Sardis whose eyes are still on the prize, who are still clinging to Jesus Christ, who haven't defiled their garments. So he's going to say, look, if you're real, if you're true, you can be true in a, in a bogus church. You can be true in a church that's dead. You can be true a lot of different ways. But he's going to lay out for them, look, you're, you're purity. You have not defiled your garments. And then he makes a promise. What's the promise? They shall walk with me in white. Now, you haven't defiled your garments. You kept your eyes on the prize. You're looking to me. So they shall walk with me in white. Man, there are at least six scriptures in the book of Revelation that all lay out this promise. We'll run through them real quick. Revelation 4.4 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. Every time you see that phrase, folks, it's all the same thing. It doesn't mean something different. Clothed in white robes mean they're wearing the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They are wearing the righteousness of Christ. Not their own righteousness, the righteousness that comes from Him. Revelation 6.11 Then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants in their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. That's Jesus' message to the martyrs during the tribulation period. Just hang out until the rest of you are dead too one of the reasons why I think everybody who comes to faith during the tribulation period is going to die. But what are they going to be given? A white robe. Righteousness of Jesus Christ. Revelation 7, 9. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, how? Clothed with white robes wearing the righteousness of christ with palm branches in their hands and what does that immediately remind us of when's the last time people had palm branches in their hand in the bible we see it when jesus is entering into the temple on palm sunday and what were they declaring blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord what's that a a davidic psalm that was sung for the king who returned oh they have white robes clothed in the righteousness of christ holding palm branches in their hand, celebrating what? The return of the king. Jesus said, Man, those who have not defiled their garments, they shall walk with me in white. Revelation 7.14 I said to him, Sir, you know, he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, who washed their robes and made them white, where? In the blood of the Lamb. Where did they get their white righteousness? Where did they get their white robes? From Jesus. From Jesus. That's what it's about. Revelation 19.8 And to her it was granted, speaking of the bride of Christ, to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Where do we get our righteousness? Jesus Christ. Revelation 19.14 And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. We'll be there that day. He's not going to need much out of us. But we'll be there that day. And what will we be in? They will walk with me in white. Now, what Jesus said? Those who have not defiled, those who are true, those who are real. And then he also speaks of their practice. They will walk with me in white. Why? Because they are worthy. They're worthy. What in the world did they get to make them worthy? How did they become worthy? How do we become worthy? The word worthy simply means of equal weight. It's like putting two things in a scale. Put one thing on one side and one on the other, and they equal each other out. How is it that that occurs? Ephesians 4, one. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In other words, be real. There are no top secret Christians. There are no top secret believers. I'm on a secret mission so nobody knows I'm a believer. No. Walk worthy. What's that mean? Christ has saved me so that's how I'm supposed to look. I'm supposed to be able to stand up and not deny Christ. Right? I'm supposed to stand up and say I'm a believer. I'm supposed to be able to do that. I'm not earning it. I'm not being worthy in the sense that you and I understand worthy. I'm living my life of equal part. He saved me, I'm his, and I want everybody to know. Yeah, it it was not hard to tell Marines. Almost anywhere in the world I go, I bump into a Marine, I know it's a Marine. Looks like a Marine. In fact, you know what? He wants to look like a Marine. Why? Because he takes pride in being a Marine. Or if I run into somebody who's in the Air Force, I can always tell he's in the Air Force. One of the ways I can always tell he's in the Air Force is he looks like he's been in air conditioning most of the day. (laughs) We used to say about the Air Force, we'd be out in the middle of the desert, sweating 190 degrees. You want to be where the Air Force is because they got air conditioners in their tents. Man, I don't know. I I might be telling stories, I don't know. I better be careful, but we can tell, right? We can tell. What else can we tell? We can tell. We can tell. I could always tell when, uh, when I was riding bikes, when I was with the Vagos. You know who I could tell was with the Vagos? They all wore colors. And they all had that same green. That green would be on them somewhere. Their shoes would be green. Their, of course, their, their colors are green. I could tell who they were. Why? Because they're proud to be Vagos. I'm not saying that's a good thing to be proud of, but I could tell. Is your colors as clear for Jesus Christ? That's what it is. To walk worthy. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want my colors to be clear. I'm with Jesus. Period. I'm with Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Their practice. They were worthy. They're walking with him. So what's the consequences for the overcomer? Last two verses. He who overcomes shall be clothed with white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess him before my Father and before his angels. Three things. Three things. And I remember when we talk about the overcomer, who's the overcomer? I've told you about it twice. Same writer says, what's the overcomer? The guy who doesn't have any of these problems? That's not what an overcomer is. He, de- he defines the overcomer by he who believes Jesus is the Son of God. who has faith in Jesus Christ. He who is a believer, a Christian, he is an overcomer. Didn't Jesus say the same thing? He said, you are overcomers. You are more than conquerors. You are more than conquerors. So, for the overcomer, what does he promise? Purity. What, how are we pure? We wear the wedding garment, right? We're clothed in white. We're clothed in white. Whose righteousness are we wearing? Jesus right not mine it's his I can't be white enough but I can if I wear his righteousness secondly not only does he talk about our purity He talks about our security now a lot of people want to flip this verse that's not what this verse says what does this verse say I will not blot out your name almost immediately when I read this verse people want to say that means he blots out some huh well that's not what he said He said, I won't blot out your name. What's that mean? You're good. You're safe with me. You can be secure because I'm not going to blot out your name. In fact, Moses, who's the most humble man on earth, stood before God and said, Lord, if you're not going to forgive all of them, blot out my name. You know what God said? No. Moses asked, Lord, take my name out your book. God said, no. No. What's he say here? He, t- he gives Him a word of security. What's a word of security? I'm not going to blot your name out of the book of life. Now, there's a lot of scripture we can look up on the book of life, and maybe we'll do it another day. But what we want to understand about the book of life, I, just four things. It's a book that uniquely belongs to the Lamb and is associated with His death. Revelation 13.8 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship Him whose names uh, have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, slain from the foundation of the world. He's talking about earth dwellers, the ones who worship the beast. They're not going to worship Him because their names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, who was slain the Lamb from the foundation of the world. So it's associated with Jesus Christ and His death. Your name has to be written in the book to enter in to the heavenly city. Revelation 21, 27. But there shall by no means enter it, the new Jerusalem, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only way. If your name is not found in this book you will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20.15 And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And those who dwell on the earth during the tribulation and marvel at the beast do not have their names written in that book, nor have they been there from the foundation of the world. Revelation 17.8 The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel. Who's going to marvel at the beast? Those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. What does Jesus promise to the overcomer? I won't blot out your name. If you're mine, you're mine. What did Jesus say? Nobody's going to snatch you out of my hands, and nobody's going to snatch you out of the Father's hands. And a lot of times we talk about, well, maybe you can jump. Maybe you can get out if you ask God. But then you've got to go to Moses. Because that's what Moses did. God, if you're not going to forgive them, let me out. And God said, No. You're mine. You're mine. The third thing that we see in this last section is the loyalty of Jesus Christ. What's that? I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. I will confess your name. I always love the fact that God was not ashamed to be called the God of Jacob. And if any of us could have been around Jacob, none of us probably would have liked him. We'd have sat down with Jacob, you know Jacob would say, "Come on, and I'll take you out to dinner, and we'd end up buying. That was Jacob. We'd go make a deal. I'm, I'm going to go buy something from Jacob. And we'd buy it and it, we'd pay twice as much as we ought to pay for it. And it'd break down the next day. That's just Jacob. But God, what did God say? Man, I'm, I'm not ashamed to be called the God of Jacob. I'll confess his name. He's mine. He's mine. I love that. God and his loyalty... In Romans 109, uh, uh, it says, "If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved." Matthew 10:32, <clears throat> Jesus said, "Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father, who is in heaven. If you confess me before men, Jesus is my God and king. My Lord." Man, that's important. And by the way, confession comes from where? Your mouth. That's one of the reasons why baptism was so important. Why was baptism so important? Because baptism was linked to a confession. Before you went under the water, where did you confess? I confess that I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What did we just do? What do we just fulfill? Confess with our mouth. Before people... I confessed him before men. Jesus said, I'll confess you before the Father. But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father. Gotta confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. Luke twelve, eight and nine. Also I say to you, who whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of god what is it that he says here to the church look blessed are he that that overcomes he'll be clothed in white garments speaking of the purity and righteousness we have in jesus christ he will not take our name out of the Lamb's book of life and i've done plenty of things worthy of having my name taken out but he said i'm not going to blot out your name if you're mine i'm not going to blot out your name and thirdly, he says, I'm going to confess you before my Father. You get to heaven, and the first thing that's going to happen is Jesus is going to throw his arm around you and say, Dad, I'd like you to meet. That's how we get in. And then he closes out the letter with the same phrase. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray.